Traditions are really a big deal for individuals, families, in our culture. Seasons of life bring different traditions that you kind of count on. They carry you from one part of the calendar to the next. And in the church world, one of the biggest traditions around Christmas every year is called Advent. Advent is Latin for coming. And it really historically has been a part of the tradition of many different denominational storylines to prepare for the coming of Jesus, not only for his birth, but also for his second coming. You see, we need to make room in our hearts for him individually, as families, and as a church. And that's what Advent can become. And we've got a devotional that we've put together, put a lot of work into, to think about on a daily basis, preparing for his first coming and his second coming. And you can read the scriptures, hear some of the devotional thoughts from our team here at Emmanuel. But also, as an individual, consider, what does that mean for me? What am I preparing for? And what does Jesus want to do in my life this year? You might think, hey, we could do this as a family. We could have a family altar. Sit down and read this together. No matter the age of your kids, you can share the story and teach them a new tradition of preparing, not just for presents, but about Jesus' story in your life and in your family. We're very excited about what's going to happen this year. And to launch our series this year, my good friend, Lee Cummings, is coming all the way from Radiant Church in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Would you put your hands together and give a great big Emmanuel welcome to Pastor Lee Cummings. Hey, hey. Good morning, Emmanuel. I want to say good morning to Maple Grove and Elk River as well. It is a privilege to be back here at Emmanuel. We absolutely love this church. And uh, we love your pastors, some of our dearest friends, Jane and I, uh, every opportunity that we get a chance to spend time with them, we always walk away so encouraged and strengthened, and uh, I laugh more with Nate than I laugh anywhere, uh, and so I'm grateful for his friendship. But I'll tell you what, uh, every time I come back here, I fall more in love with Emmanuel. This is an amazing church right here in Minneapolis, and so, so privileged to be here. So as, as uh, Nate mentioned, we're from Kalamazoo, Michigan. And so not only did Kalamazoo send me, but we also sent our uh, Western Michigan University football coach to the University of Minnesota. Any Minnesota, what is it, Gophers, right? Is that what you, any Gophers fans out there? Nope, nobody likes the Gophers. All right, well, it's kind of like Detroit Lions fans in Michigan. They're rare, uh, but they have great faith when you meet them. So, because we're still waiting to win. Uh, this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13, and I want to bring a message to you from the words of Jesus out of Mark chapter 13, and I've entitled this message, Stay Awake, and this is, this is appropriate as we enter into the Advent season. Advent, as Pastor Nate mentioned, is a time when the church historically reflects on Jesus' first coming or his first Advent. And then we learn from the waiting and the preparation of his first coming to make us people prepared for his second coming. How many are looking forward and longing greatly for the return of the Lord, the blessed hope of the church? That's going to be a glorious day. I'll tell you what, when Jesus returns, when Jesus comes back, I mean, that's going to be an amazing moment. But just like Jesus' first coming, 
as people that are awaiting for his second coming, we need to make sure that we are spiritually alert and awake. This is what Jesus was speaking to his disciples about, beginning in verse number uh, 32. If you'd follow along with me, these are Jesus's words. He says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And he finishes off in the last verse by saying, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Some other translations like the New King James translation, which I grew up memorizing Bible verses in, it says, take heed, watch, and pray. Take heed, watch, and pray. The English Standard Version that I just quoted from, it just simply encapsulates all of that into this two-word phrase, stay awake. Everybody practice that with me. Say, stay awake. So it's important for you to stay awake during this message as well. Help this preacher out. But we need to understand what Jesus is really talking about when he says it's important for you as my disciples that when all of these things begin to happen, and if you read all of chapter 13, you realize that Jesus is answering the questions of his disciples about his second coming. Because they asked him, they said, Jesus, when you come back, what's, what's the condition of the world going to be like? How are we going to know when you're coming back? What are the signs of your coming? And you remember, Jesus said, well, there's going to be wars, rumors of wars, kingdom rising against kingdom, nation against nation. There'll be signs in the heavens, signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, and signs on the earth. It says there's going to be famines, earthquakes, all of these things that we kind of know from studying end times prophecy books and movies and prophecy charts. And if you've read the scriptures, you know, it's very clear that there's going to be signs and there's going to be indications centered around the return of the Lord. Now, here's what's interesting, though, is that while Jesus is answering these questions about what the conditions of the world will be like right before his return, Jesus is actually more concerned with the internal preparation of his people over the external conditions of the world around them. Because he says four times in five verses, disciples, my followers, he says, stay awake. Make sure that you stay awake. When you begin to see all these things happen, make sure that you spiritually are staying awake. And I think that's so important for us to identify because as the church, we've written all kinds of books on end times, signs, prophecies, blood moons, you name it. Uh, and it's nothing new. We've, uh, when I was growing up in the 1980s, there was a man who wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Return in 1988. Anybody remember that book? You know, it's, it's still not a bestseller anymore since you know, <laughs> didn't pan out. But I remember in his book, he prophesied that Jesus would return in September 1988. Well, I was going into my senior year when that book came out. So I thought, well, if he's coming back in September, I guess I don't need to go back to school. I mean, that's every student's dream. My parents did not buy into that line of theology, by the way. 
But you know, those books came out, Hale Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth. There were movies that came out in the 70s. That, you know, one was called Mark of the Beast. Anybody remember that? And then like Image of the Beast. And there was this, they were like Christian horror films. They like <laughs> pictured what the world was going to be like during, during the uh, tribulation and had a Larry Norman song. That'll date me. I mean, Christian contemporary music, Larry Norman had a song. You know, it was about the coming of the Lord. He's like, it's too late to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. <laughs> that freaked me out, man. Free, I mean, just scared me. So there was like this weird obsession with the signs of the times. Now listen, I believe in the return of the Lord, the physical, visible return of Jesus Christ to reign and to rule on the earth. And when he comes, how many know, he's not taking polls, he's not consulting CNN, he's, not, he, he's coming and he's coming to claim what belongs to him. But what's important, what was important to Jesus when he taught this is the same thing that's important to Jesus today. It's for you and I as his church to make sure that we are spiritually Alert, awake. My son, who's 21, 22 now, when he heard me preach this, he said, Dad, you're getting it wrong. Because I kept telling people, Jesus wants us to stay awake. He said, no, Dad, I don't want you to stay awake. You got it wrong. You got, you got to say it like they say it now. I'm like, well, what is it? He said, you got to stay woke. <laughs> you got to be spiritually woke. So maybe that's what we need. I don't even know. But... My son told me, so it must be true. <laughs> but we need to be spiritually alert. And here's why I think Jesus said this four times in five verses. It's because the greatest danger for you and I living in the days that I believe are described in the Bible as the last days, our greatest danger is not what the devil has on tap for us. The greatest danger facing us has nothing to do with the signs and the wars and the rumors of wars. It has nothing to do with the gates of hell because Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against the church that he would build. The greatest danger facing us is that we would fall into a state of spiritual slumber. That's why Jesus said, make sure that you stay awake or stay woke, that we need to be alert, watchful, prayerful, sober-minded in the days that we live in so that we, we don't fall prey to spiritual slumber. That's true of Jesus' second coming, and it's, it's much that we can learn from Jesus' first coming. It's interesting, at Advent, we talk about his first coming, but think about this for a moment. When, when Jesus came as this Emmanuel child to Mary and Joseph, that we celebrate now with prophetic 2020 hindsight looking backwards because now we know the whole scope of the story. Just realize this, that the people who were in Israel, that Jesus came to be their deliverer, did not recognize him. Mary and Joseph, you know, they, they bring Jesus into the temple on the eighth day, which is a custom of Moses, that he would be set apart as the firstborn, belonging to the Lord, dedicated. And so here they are, this Middle Eastern couple bringing their little eight-year-old child into the temple. And there's thousands of people, like there are in this, 
in this building today that are in the house of God there to offer their sacrifices. They're there to pray their prayers. And what are they praying? They're praying the same prayers that they prayed for hundreds and even a couple thousand years. Lord, send the deliverer. Send the Savior. Send our Messiah. And they've got the scriptures. They had the scriptures. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they all knew the scriptures. They knew Genesis 3.15, the first mention of the gospel where God promises after the fall. He says, I'm going to send my seed and he will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. They had the scriptures where it says that Shiloh will come, that there will come one like Moses who's a prophet to his people, that out of the house of Jesse will rise up a deliverer from Bethlehem. Smallest of all the different cities and the tribes of Israel will come deliver her. They have Isaiah chapter 9 where it says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting God, the Prince of Peace. They have all these promises. So here they are all gathered in God's house praying, sacrificing, worshiping. And in their midst come Joseph and Mary carrying God. The very God they're praying to walks right through the courtyards and it's probably probable that many of them actually bumped into the God they were on their way to pray to. Think about that. Excuse me, I'm on my way to worship God. But they didn't recognize that he was there fulfilling the words of Malachi that says, behold, suddenly the Lord will appear in his temple. And so in the midst of all these people who don't recognize him, there were only two Two people that recognized him. One of them was this man named Simeon. And the other was a woman named Anna. Simeon, the Bible tells us in Luke 2.25, it says there was a man named Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then Anna was this widow who had given herself to 24 hours of prayer and fasting constantly in the house of God. These are the only two that were awoke. They were awake. When Jesus walks in, Simeon sees him and says, that's him right there. The Lord has spoken to me. Why were they able to see what everybody else missed? Because they had their spiritual eyes open and they had the Holy Spirit bearing witness about the days that they were living in. Church, I believe that we need to have a spirit of Simeon about us, a spirit of Anna about us in the days that we live in, that we can respond to Jesus' call for you and I to be awake. That no matter what's happening on the other side of the world, no no matter how many earthquakes are happening, no matter the spiritual darkness of the conditions that are around us, that when darkness is on the increase, you and I are spiritually alert and awake. I think it's not only important, I think it's the mandate for us. That the days that we live in, they are dark. Isaiah chapter 60 says, darkness will cover the earth, gross darkness the people. But it also says the glory of the Lord will be visible because it will rise upon his people. There's a glory that God has for you and I if we will stay awake. And, And there's a difference between being spiritually or physically awake and being spiritually awake. You know, when you're, when you think about the physiology of sleep, sleep is so important. You can't live without sleep. Your body is hardwired physiologically to know when you're supposed to wake up and to know when you're supposed to go to sleep. Jane and I just got back from uh, a quick four-day, three-and-a-half-day trip to Russia. 
uh, we preached over in uh, Moscow for a friend of ours named Rick Renner. And uh, so it was just a little three-day trip. We were colluding with Russia while we were over there. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, when, you, when you get on a plane and you fly to Russia, you, you fly about nine hours to Amsterdam and then another, about another four hours to Moscow. And, and when you arrive there, you experience what, if you've ever traveled three, four, even more hours, uh, time zones away from where you live, you experience this thing called jet lag. Anybody ever experienced that? Jet lag, it's the worst thing that you can experience. And the reason why you experience jet lag, where you're up all night, is because your body is hardwired to know when to go to sleep and when to stay awake based on something called a circadian rhythm. Circadian rhythm, a, a clinical definition of it is this. It's a physical, mental, and behavioral changes that follow a cycle, responding primarily to light and darkness in a person's direct environment. And it's controlled by nerve clusters just above the optic nerve behind the eyes. So that what this circadian rhythm does is it is a way that God has hardwired you and I. We've got these nerve clusters behind our eyes. Light comes into our eyes. The nerve sees that light is out. And it sends a message to your brain that it's time to turn on all the lights and all the rooms of your brain. It's time to wake up. It's time because you got to go to work. you got to get the kids up. you got to start focusing. you got to flip power on Mr. Coffee. It's time to get going. So when light comes, it's time to wake up. But... When it begins to get dark at like 4.30 in the afternoon, as it does in Michigan and in Minnesota, you get less light coming into your eyes. The absence of light, darkness, begins to also trigger your nerves and tell the brain that it's time to shut lights off in certain parts of your brain. It's time to wind down. So this circadian rhythm goes, operates in a 24-hour cycle. When you're in the middle of light or day, it's time to stay awake. But when you lose light, eventually what it begins to do is create melatonin and begin to tell your brain it's time to go to sleep. Now, jet lag happens because you're living in the eastern time zone or the central time zone. And then if you travel across multiple time zones, so you're over here where it's daytime, you get on a plane and you travel quickly over... 10 time zones and you get here and it might be daytime where you came from but it's nighttime here everybody here is going to sleep because their bodies are calibrated to the darkness that they're in but you're wide awake because even though your body's here your mind is still calibrated to where you came from now the goal when you travel is to get your mind as quickly calibrated to the time zone that you're in so you're awake when everybody's awake and you can go to sleep when everybody goes to sleep. But spiritual circadian rhythm is exactly the opposite. Jesus doesn't want you to calibrate to the darkness. You see, because when you come into Jesus, when you are born again, the Bible tells us that it's Jesus translating us out of the kingdom of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of light. The Bible describes us as children of the light, children of the day. In Ephesians 2, it says that you're seated with Christ in heavenly places. In Philippians chapter 3, it says that you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So spiritually speaking, when you get born again, you are, your heart gets calibrated to the time zone of heaven. But you're living all these time zones over here different in the middle of the world 
where it is dark, spiritually dark because it's nighttime, even though you're a child of the light and the new day. So in the natural, you would want yourself to calibrate to the darkness so you could live like everybody else. But Jesus wants you to stay calibrated to the time zone of heaven even when you're living in the darkness. That's why he says stay awake. Because the tendency for us is that we get saved. Listen, we get born again over here and we love Jesus. Everything's changed, but we come over here and the longer we're over here, little by little, hour by hour, we begin to calibrate to the darkness. And then we find ourselves spiritually asleep. And Jesus said, stay awake, stay in the light. So I want to just take a couple minutes and talk to you about how do we stay awake in the last days? How do we stay awake as we await the coming of the Lord? What is, what's required of us? Here's some things that I think will help us spiritually stay awake. Number one is this, don't relax. Don't relax. How many know after a hard day you come home, all you want to do is sit down in your favorite, favorite Barker lounger? You know the thing that's like got avocado green, burnt orange, plaid, wood. It's held together by duct tape. It leans to one side when you pull the kick you know, stool out. Your dog has you know, slept on it for 20 years. But it's the most comfortable chair that you have. And you just, when you sit in that thing with your remote control and your TV dinner, life is good. <laughs> and you begin to relax. Your wife's been trying to burn that thing for a decade, but you're holding on to it. Because you know when I get to, man, when I get to that, I can relax. It's fine for us to rest, but there's a difference between rest and relaxation. You see, relaxation is about comfort. And when we're talking in terms of how we live in the world, we can never get comfortable here because here is not our home. This is not our home. I never sleep good in any other bed than the one that's home. Pillows are always wrong. Mattresses are always wrong. We don't get comfortable until we get home. We cannot make this place home. There's a difference between resting in God and actually relaxing in the world. They're vastly two different things. Because let me tell you something about comfort. Compromise is actually a spiritual bacteria that breeds in the Petri dish of comfort. Compromise, where you begin to make concessions in your faith. You begin to... See yourself as belonging in this world instead of being a stranger and a foreigner, a peculiar people. Because you're living here and eventually what begins to happen is the enemy whispers in your ear. He presents opportunities and you begin to make little concessions because you're relaxing spiritually. And so this compromise leads to this compromise and eventually just like a bacteria, it begins to grow and multiply and infest and eventually take over. And what you thought was just going to be just, a, you know, I'm just going to relax a little bit. Hey, I'm going to chill out in my faith a little bit. I don't want to be, I don't want to be one of those crazy fanatics. You know, I, I don't want to be one that goes to church and the prayer meeting on Wednesday night. That, now those people are crazy. <laughs> Can I just tell you something? You've already gone too far. You already believe God became a man, came in the flesh as a child in the Middle East, lived a sinless and perfect life, died for the sins of the world on a cross, and three days later rose from the dead. You've already crossed the line of crazy. You just might, might, might go all the way. 
You just, might, you just better be a fanatic because it's not rational. It's not logical. It's supernatural. But there are some times where we get so relaxed in our spiritual walk that before we know it, we're just, we're compromising over here. And it happens. There's a man in the Old Testament that exemplifies this. His name was Lot. Lot was the nephew of the father of our faith, Abraham. And as they came into the promised land together, their herds began to multiply and their, their servants and, and their whole group got larger and larger and larger. And eventually Abraham said to Lot, we need to part ways. So you decide what area of the ground you want and I'm going to go to the other. I'll give you first choice. So Abraham gave him the first option and Lot says, I'll take the Valley of Jordan the plush, green, comfortable land. And the Bible tells us in Genesis that Lot went and he settled towards Sodom. Sodom is always a picture of the world's comfort, pleasures, sin, compromise. So it starts off with Lot taking all of his herds, all of his family, and they, they don't go into Sodom. They actually camp just outside of Sodom in the plains. But later on, a little while goes by, and eventually God needs to deliver Lot because he's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So he sends his angels, and when the angels come to deliver Lot, they don't find him where he camped just outside of Sodom. They actually find him living in Sodom. How did that happen? Because he got comfortable, and he began to compromise. You know what, honey, it'd probably just be a lot easier if we just lived in the city. You know, it's closer to everything. You got, you know, all the restaurants are there and the school systems are better. And, you know, I, I'm commuting a lot and, and it just, we should just move in there. We'll be all right. We'll be, listen, we'll be good. We're still going to go to church. We're still going to, and eventually they moved into the city. And the Bible says in the New Testament about Lot in 2 Peter it says that God delivered righteous Lot. Think about this. It says, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul day and night by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. So he was called righteous, but yet something was tormented on the inside of him. And it didn't happen all in one day. It happened day by day by day by day by degree. And it was because he got comfortable. Church, we can't get comfortable. We got to keep our heart calibrated to the kingdom of God and not allow ourselves to overcome the spiritual jet lag that we need and, and get comfortable and make this place home. We need to never forget where we come from and who we belong to. Number two, if we're going to stay awake, we got to keep in the light. We have to stay in the light. If you want to stay awake, you got to stay in the light. Well, what's the light? The light for us as people of God is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. There's a chapter, the longest chapter that you have in your Bible, Psalm 119. It is a chapter that is dedicated to the power, the beauty, and the devotion of the Word of God. It says, the entrance of your Word, O Lord, brings light and understanding to the simple. It also says... Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's interesting that God chose the longest chapter in the Bible to dedicate to the power and the need that we have for the Bible. Because it's a spiritual light. Jesus said that the Bible is different than any other book that you and I will ever read in our life. Jesus said, the words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. 
Hebrews chapter 4 says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between soul and spirit and discern. It's a discerner of us, which means this. The Bible is the only book that you will ever read that when you are reading it, it's actually reading you. It's spirit-breathed. It's spirit-inspired. It's God's words. It's God's thoughts. When Jesus was tempted out in the wilderness for 40 days, he didn't quote any philosophers. He said, it is written, and he quoted the word of God. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He didn't say by every quote that you read on Google. He didn't, he didn't quote anybody else's book. He said, we need the word of God in church. I think one of the demonic tactics of the days that we're living in is the fact that we live in a nation where we have more Bibles than people, but we have a higher than ever biblical illiteracy issue. People just don't know the Bible. We've got every kind of Bible you can think of. We've, when I grew up, we had uh, NIV and King James and maybe you know, one other translation, and you could get it in brown, burgundy, or black. That was it. Now we've got every kind of Bible you can think of. I've got 56 translations on my phone. You can get NIV, NLT, ESV, New King James, King James, New American Standard, American Standard, Phillips Translation, the Dewey Translation, the Jerusalem Bible, Holman Christian, Broadman Standard Bible. You can, you can, get, you can get it in burgundy. You can get it in aluminum Hard case, you can get it with lizard skin, elephant skin, you can get it in pink, purple, sparkle, bedazzled, you can get it in camouflage, you can, you can get it with snaps, you can get it in this big, that big, you can get a student study Bible, men's study Bible, ESV study Bible, elderly people study Bible, military study Bible, prophecy study Bible, leadership study Bible, third ship, slurpy repairman at 7-Eleven study Bible. You can have it on your phone. You can have it on your iPad. Man, I used to memorize King James Alexander Scorby cassette tapes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. <laughs> British accent. I used to play those tapes over and over and over again. Now you get it on you version, where it's actually a cool voice. It's like, yeah, man, there was God. I mean, it's good. We got more Bibles. We got them in hotel rooms. We got them on our phones. We got them on our bookcases. They sell them at Walmart. (laughs) Can I tell you the most important Bible? The only Bible that you need to read? It's the one that you have. That's sitting on our nightstands far too often collecting dust because we're distracted by all the other things of the world. Listen, we are a generation that is connected to everything. We're connected to everything. I grew up in a day, and this will date me, but when you wanted to make a phone call, you had to go in the kitchen. <laughs> Remember that? Come on, parents. Shout me down. You, you had to go in the kitchen. Who are you calling? <laughs> Susie, what are you doing? So avocado green, bell phones, and you take the thing off the handle. Shinking, shinking, shinking. Shink, shink, shink. Dialed it wrong. Shinking. Do it all over again. And then you had like a 25-foot cable on the thing. So you could go around the corner into the bathroom, turn the lights off, and sit and talk to your girlfriend. Right? (laughs) Now kids are walking around. Who are you talking to? Eh. 
I'll take away your phone. Good, I'll Skype them. Snapchat them. We're connected to everything. In high school, when I wanted to write a paper, you had to go to the library and use this thing called an encyclopedia. I told my kids that, and literally, it would have been the same look of shock if I had told them when I was a kid I had a Tyrannosaurus Rex as a pet. They're just like, why didn't you like Google? Because we didn't have Google. We're connected to information, technology. We have access to everything, except we've forsaken the one thing that the Bible says about itself, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God remains forever. This is the light. We gotta get this in us. And can I tell you, the Bible doesn't work by osmosis. You can't download it. Come on, it doesn't work like that. It's gotta go through your eye. The light goes into your eye that then renews your soul. Receive with meekness the implanted word of God which is able to save your souls. We're spiritually anorexic church because we're feeding on all the cotton candy of this carnival we call the world and we're missing out on the living word of God. Somebody asked me in a coffee shop the other day, I live in a college town, and so a lot of times you get academics and intellectuals and they saw I was, I intentionally bring my big Bible when I'm studying there. Cause, so I had my big Bible out and a guy's like, do you really believe that? I said, what? And he goes, that, that book is so archaic. It's so misogynistic. And I can't believe you read that book. I said, baby, I believe that book from the table of contents to the maps. I believe everything, including where it says genuine leather on the back. I believe that thing. We need to be unashamed about the Word of God. People of the Word of God, quoting the Word of God, living the Word of God. Stay in the light. Stay in the light. When you get into decision-making mode in your life and you don't have a database, a hard drive downloaded, filled with the Word of God, don't be shocked when your decisions look like the world. When all you've done is Netflix, don't be shocked when Game of Thrones is influencing your decisions instead of going to the throne of grace and letting it shape your decisions. Uh Uh-oh, I'm, all right. Somebody over there got mad, so I gotta move on, all right. Stay in the light. And number four, I'm jumping right to number four just because I feel like this is where God wants me to go. So number three, you'll just have to follow you version notes, but church, we gotta stay fueled. We gotta stay fueled with the power of the Holy Spirit. If there's ever been a day where we need the power of the Holy Spirit, it's today. It's today. How we think we're gonna, how we think we're gonna influence the world, how we think we're gonna stay awake and stay alert without the power of the Holy Spirit. I have no idea. When you look at the early church and you look at the first apostles, they did not have trains, planes, automobiles. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have printing press. They didn't have agents. They didn't have social media. They didn't even have seminary degrees, which I believe in all, I believe in all of those things. They're great tools. But they didn't have any of them. They're gathered in an upper room on the day of Pentecost. And God poured his spirit out and it says, suddenly there came a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind. And flames of fire distributed over their heads, and they all began to speak in tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. Crowds began to gather and say, what is this? And the cowardly Peter 
who had denied him now stands up some 50 days later and says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, where God says in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. This is that and gave an altar call and 3000 people got born again in one day. The Bible goes on to describe those early disciples as those who turned the world upside down. And sometimes I wonder, we, we rely so much on the tools that we have and we underestimate the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit that we desperately need in this hour. See, Jesus told this parable in Matthew 25 about the 10 virgins. He says that there was these 10 virgins that came out to meet the bridegroom at night. And when the bridegroom was delayed, five of them had not brought extra oil. Five were called wise because they had all the oil that they needed. And the five that were missing some oil, they turned to the other ones. And in verse eight of Matthew 25, they said, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. And the other five, the wise one says, no, you go purchase your own. And while they were gone, the bridegroom came. It's a picture of the church in the last days. There's no secondhand anointing that you and I can borrow somebody else's anointing like they couldn't borrow their oil. We need to have our own reservoir. And the oil is always a picture of the Holy Spirit. And church, in the days that we're living in, it might seem like the Lord is tearing. It might seem like the days are darker than they've ever been before. And that might be true. But I know this, I know that the same Holy Spirit that turned the world upside down in the first century is the same Holy Spirit that's in the church in North America. And God's not backing down from the darkness. God's wanting to turn the light on the lamp up and let a light shine in a city on a hill. We need to be people fueled with the power of the Holy Spirit. We need it. We desperately need it. If we're going to stay awake, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you the last one is number three. It's keep your focus. Keep your focus. If you and I are going to stay awake in the last days that we're living in, if we're going to see, it's not just about seeing the Lord return. It's about being awake to the days that you and I are living in and the significance of what they are all about. It's about knowing the days and, and what God is doing and what we've been called to be a part of. You see, eternity is going to be the great clarifier, isn't it? When we get to heaven, we're gonna look back on this life and, and everything's gonna have perspective. Everything's gonna have perspective. But right now, it's so easy to get distracted. We gotta keep our focus. That's why the author of Hebrews makes it so clear. He says, looking unto Jesus... I love that phrase. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the originator and he's the orchestrator of our faith. Philippians chapter 1 says that he who began a good work in you and I will be faithful to complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what's required of us is the first part of that is keeping our eyes on Jesus. Because we're living in, a, in an age where more than ever... It's easy to get distracted. You're, you're focused in on a conversation that you're having. It's deep. It's about family. It's about the Lord. And then all of a sudden, squirrel. And your eyes shift. It's like, what's going on? Spiritually, we get distracted. But can I just tell you, in eternity, the things that we're going through right now, the things that seem so important to us right now, and I, I get it, they're important. But in priority levels, 
Nobody's gonna step into heaven and say, I wish I spent more time at the office. Our box of trophies from Little League Sports, 10 years from now, it's gonna be in the corner of a basement. All the other things that distract us and wanna get our eyes off of the main thing, all it will do is just bleed us of our first love passion. Keep our focus. It's why the same writer of Hebrews is talking about running our race, run in such a way that you can win, casting off every weight and every sin and everything that so easily entangles us. Let us run the race with endurance. This life is a race. And in eternity, a million years from now, a billion years from now, we'll look back on this life and it will just be a, a memory and we'll realize that this, this life, the 70, 80, 90 years was a test. It was training for eternal reigning. And we're gonna look back on it and it will all make sense. But right now, we're required to keep our focus. When I think about focus, I think about this young man who I read about a couple years ago. It was a true story. It was talking about, it was in Runner's World magazine. It was a story about how this young man, when he was about seven, eight years old, his dad was deployed for the first time to Afghanistan. His dad would come home, and when he would come home, the, the one thing that he did that he connected with his dad in was he would go for runs. His dad loved to run. In fact, his dad was a marathon runner. So he remembers his dad would come home when he was 10 years old, and he'd go run around the block with his dad. His dad came home when he was 12, and he'd go run a 5K with his dad. Dad would come home when he's 13, 14 years old after one of his tours, and he'd go out for a run with his dad. So now he's a senior in high school, about ready to graduate. And as he entered into his senior year, he decided, you know what? I feel closest to my dad when I run. So in honor of my dad, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna train for a marathon this year. So he'd go out every single day, he'd go run. And when he would run, he'd think about his dad, talk with his dad on the phone, Skype, tell dad I ran. His dad would say, yeah, I ran. They would talk about it. And he trained all his senior year for this race. See, the, the time of the race came and he showed up on race day early. He got his bib, his number. He trained hard, gets up to the starting line and he's thinking about the race. He takes off when the gun goes off and he runs the first 10 miles and first 10 miles, just easy. Thinks to himself, man, this, this is incredible. Doing so good. Gets to mile 15, he begins to look at his watch and he begins to see his splits and his time and he's thinking to himself, I'm gonna break my, I'm gonna break my expectations. I, I think I'm gonna do really well. He gets to mile 20 and he, he knows that at mile 20, you're supposedly supposed to hit a wall, but he doesn't hit the wall. He just blazes right through it. And now he begins to think, I think I might place in my age group. I think I might beat my friends because I haven't seen any of them pass me. I'm way out ahead of them. And he begins to think about the medal, maybe placing, standing on the, the, the winner's platform in his age bracket, all these things are going through his mind. So he, he speeds up, he gets to mile 26, it's a 26.2 mile race, and he sees the crowds and he can see the finish line up ahead. Crowds are cheering, screaming. And as he gets closer to the finish line, he looks up and he sees one man in the center of the tape that he's about ready to cross, and it's a man wearing camouflage. He says, wow, that looks a lot like my dad. And as he gets closer, he begins to realize it is his dad. His dad has gotten a surprise leave of absence. And he wanted to be at the race at the finish line to congratulate his son. 
as he gets closer within feet of the finish line, his dad's waiting there. And he runs into the arms of his dad who embraces him and together they cross the finish line. And in those last few meters, he stops thinking about the medals. He's not thinking about his time. He's not looking back on the pain of his race or the cramping in his legs or the training that he's gone through. In that moment, all that matters is the eyes of his father that he sees at the finish line, that he boldly and fastly runs into his arms and embraces his dad and his dad just whispers in his ear, good job, son, I'm so proud of you. Church, that's, that's what it's gonna be like when you and I cross the finish line of this life. Whether it's by rapture or resurrection, when we see him, it's gonna be worth it. Just to look into his eyes, just to see the same eyes that looked up to heaven and said, Father, forgive them. The same eyes that looked at you when you took your first breath, the same eyes that have never been taken off of you your entire life, to see those same eyes now become more than just faith, to actually become sight. And to see them look at you and to hear the words of Jesus say over you, well done, good and faithful servant. In that moment, it's all gonna be worth it. The things of this world, as the old song says, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.